Are you laughing now? All right, all right. My wife beater's on, my coffee is full, and I am ready to rock and roll. Welcome to episode 13 of Embrace the Suck, the only official licensed, sanctioned, one rep max deadlift endorsing podcast of APG, bringing you two cents worth of free perspective on the heavy hitting lifestyle. I'm your host, Bill Hart, coming to you almost live, this time from San Diego. Yes, indeed, really and truly I am in San Diego this time, where I have just flown in this morning to oversee my ding dong son's final two weeks of high school. So kind of the situation here was I'm setting up shop on the East Coast. This guy wants to stay and finish high school with his goofball friends. So I say, yeah, let me set you up in a, in a rinky-dink apartment and you can do your thing. So my original plan was, you know, traveling a lot to see clients. I can pop in and out and make sure he's in one piece. But now this coronavirus thing hits and I haven't seen the guy for two months, you know. So, you know, some might question my judgment there, but... It is what it is, man. Uh, but uh, I took off from the East Coast this morning, and uh, it was bizarro world, to say the least. So on the plus side, I mean, it is probably safer to go through airports right now than it is to be in a grocery store just because the airports are empty, like they're properly empty. Um, like this is what societal collapse looks like. Like there's nobody there. Like you can hear the billions leaving the room. Um but uh, nobody at the airports. Um, the planes pretty much empty. Both flights. Uh, I had to connect, obviously, because you know how much fun would it be to not connect. But uh, both flights, uh, forty people. So you got a row to yourself. The guy across from you has a row to himself. Um, maybe there's somebody in front or behind you, but not both. So it was that was nice, but a little bit weird. Uh, I flew through Chicago, which is usually a nightmare, but uh, walking around there and trying to find something to eat, or at least even trying to find a cheap cup of coffee. Uh, There was one restaurant and two stores open. So as per, you go to the airport and they're going to find a way to make you stand in line. But I got back to San Diego and I got to the otherwise unassuming apartment where my kid has been abusing the neighbors and woke him up at the crack of noon. Surprise, surprise. And as you can guess... The place smells like a foot with um, about five bags of trash and assorted pizza boxes. And really the only thing missing was a team of cops pushing things around with a pencil, trying to figure out what went on here, just trying to get the story, you know. But all in all, not not so bad, you know, no drug paraphernalia, no Russian gangsters hanging around in the living room. Uh, none of the doors had been replaced with bead curtains, so it was really as good as can be expected for an 18-year-old dude being left to his devices. Quick beard update. Not sure how many weeks it's been since I made the colossal mistake of shaving my beard back in March, but at this point I'm looking about like a 19th century Scottish steelworker. So I'm not entirely dissatisfied. It's just, you know, it's like anything, man. It takes takes a minute to get it done. And you know, you know the look I mean, like not too bushy, like it doesn't say criminally inclined, but it also doesn't suggest long hours of book learning, right? More like I got to get two hours of sleep and get back to the factory for my next shift. No time for a shave. But enough of that. Uh, Let's move on to the topic for this week. Topic from this week is a question from one of our clients, Chris Terhune from LPL Financial. He sent us an email and says, um, it's often easy to let circumstances 
alter our thinking, but uh, in reality, circumstances don't matter. We must always do the right thing, even when it's hard or when we don't want to. I'd love to get your perspective on what it means to stay true to your mission and values, even when the world is screaming at you to do otherwise. Yeah, that's for sure. Definitely. Um, but this, uh, this question reminded me of something I saw recently. and It was a study on shopping carts and uh, how people behave in terms of putting them back or not putting them back. And the idea of, of the shopping cart study was that it kind of speaks to the way people behave in general or the integrity of a society uh, as a whole or an organization as a whole. And the reason it sort of applies that way is because, you know, obviously putting your shopping cart back after you're done with it, it, it helps maintain order, uh, it guarantees a properly functioning, a properly functioning shopping experience, but nothing happens to you if you don't put it back. Like nobody's going to come to you. The shopping cart police aren't going to give you a ticket. Um, and if you do put it back, uh, nobody is going to come and pat you on the head. Nobody's going to put your picture on the wall and say, hey, look, this guy maintaining the order. So what this shopping cart thing really does is offers a chance in an everyday situation to get a look at people's integrity. Uh, but if we apply this shopping cart study as a kind of a yardstick for the integrity of a society or an organization as a whole, in a broader sense, it raises a few questions. And those questions are, like, are you doing the right thing only to avoid some kind of punishment or reward? You know, because if you're not putting it back and nothing happens to you, well, then, you know, are you just saying, well, I'm just going to do what I want? Or if you're not going to get anything, would, would you just say, well, I don't get anything for putting it back, so I'm not going to do it? I mean, it raises the question of, do you even know what the right thing is? Because, like, I used to work with a guy that when we'd go out to, you know, when you go to, like, a not high-end restaurant and... Um, they don't come and bust your table for you. Like you need to take your trash and go put it over there. There was, I worked with this guy that he would never do it and we'd get on him and we're like, dude, what are you doing? Like put your trash away. He's like, no, you don't put it away. You, you leave it there because that's gotta be somebody's job. You know, if you don't, if they don't have trash to pick up, then somebody might get fired. And if you leave it there enough, then maybe, you know, maybe they got to hire somebody to, to get the trash if enough people do it. So really I'm creating employment. And I'm like, look, are you trying to stretch this into some kind of weird second, third order effects thing where like, oh, you know, how does this ultimately affect food prices? And, you know, is this going to make the, the taco market go up or down? How about just what's right in front of you? Like, there's the trash. Take it out. Let's just do that. What do you say? But I mean, it kind of raises the question then of like, what kind of a society or what kind of an organization are you promoting based on what you expect from other citizens then or other members of that organization? You know, nobody's going to always voice disapproval like if you see somebody not put a shopping cart back you're not gonna be like hey what are you doing to my shopping experience you know go get on them but when people disapprove you know you know when you do something and people are kind of looking at you sideways like like if you were to go to the store in your pajamas right like people look at you like come on man is it that much of a of a chore to get dressed and, and then people don't do it and then ultimately it kind of begs the question of are you somebody that actively contributes to what's around you or are you just sort of the person that figures that someone else will take up the slack and make things work the way that we should? But looking a little deeper at this, um, this shopping cart situation, there's actually been a few studies on these. And one of the studies that I looked at kind of broke the, uh, the shopping cart returning phenomenon down into five distinct categories. So there's returners, 
never returners, convenience returners, pressure returners, and child-driven returners. So I see there's no punt returners or kickoff returners in here, but we're going to work with what we have. So returners, these are people who return their carts to the receptacle regardless of how far away they've parked or what the weather is like because they feel a sense of obligation or feel badly for the people responsible collecting the carts. So long and short, these people feel that, yeah, this is part of the deal. I have to put the thing back. I'm going to do it, you know, whether it's convenient or not. Never returners, these are people who are never going to do it. They believe it is someone else's job to get the carts or the supermarket's responsibility and show little regard for where the carts are left. So this really could include people that just don't know, that say, what, they pay someone to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to create unemployment. But it could also, it, obviously this also includes people that are like, hey, somebody will do it, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. Number three, convenience returners. These are people who will return the carts if they parked close enough to the receptacle or if they see an attendant. So, yeah, it suits my, you know, it suits my pattern of life. I'll just go ahead and do it then. Number four, pressure returners. People who will return their carts only if the cart attendant is present or if the adjacent car owner is present, which means they don't have an easy place to just dump their cart. Might as well put it back. I can't just leave it here, right? And uh, child-driven returners. So these are people with children who view it as a game to return to carts, often riding them back to the receptacle or pushing them into the stacked lines. I do enjoy riding a shopping cart. It's a pretty cool time. So these studies go on to note that apart from the always returners or never returners, uh, people are consistently influenced by the perception of, of either everybody else is putting the carts away or nobody else is putting the carts away. So so when they look at parking lots where all the carts are being put away, people that, are, that could go either way, they're, they're going to always go and put them away. And in parking lots where there's just tons of carts everywhere, people that could go either way, they just kind of leave them wherever. So basically what, what you can take away from that then is that three out of the five categories that people could fall into, those people would just do what everyone else appears to be doing. And that should matter to you because given the reach of, say, modern media, everybody else can be made to appear to be doing literally everything. So you could probably be convinced, you know, we could convince these people that well, everybody else is taking those carts to their house and making yard sculptures out of them. And the next thing you know, you're going to see a lot of missing shopping carts. Just like the thing with, with the toilet paper, right? Everybody's getting toilet paper. I better get toilet paper. What are you going to do with all that? I don't know. I just know I need it. So that raises a question for each of us. Where do we fall in this shopping cart schematic? What kind of person, what kind of person are you? And, I'm not, and I don't mean what kind of person do you tell people you are, because that would inherently include those people that say, well, I'm a good person. I try to live a good life. And I'll tell you something. The day will come, I assure you, when insisting that I am a good person will be grounds for a public flogging. And I will be there with popcorn and a folding chair. But I also mean uh, not what kind of person do you know you should be or hope to be someday or what kind of, you know, any of that. But actually, what kind of person are you? What are you actually doing? And at this point, I think we could kind of pause and say, if you're somebody that's thinking right now that like, well, are there things I should probably tighten myself up on? Then probably you're the sort that's been carrying the water for a while. And if you're the sort that says, I'm a good person, this doesn't apply to me. Guess who the problem is? It's you. But really in all, this comes down to a personal integrity question. And whether you're someone who does what you feel you should do, 
or just does what everybody else does, whether you feel it's right or wrong. So for a severe real-world example of how this kind of personal integrity can affect an outcome, we can look at this situation from the first Gulf War, from uh, the early 90s Desert Storm, Desert Shield area, and what happened with this British SAS patrol that went by the call sign Bravo 2-0. So for any team guys listening, Bravo 2-0, this is a book that we've literally all read, um, but it's about a, a British SAS patrol, eight-man patrol, that inserted for an operation in January of 1991, got compromised, got shot at, shot back, and then went on E&E, or escape and evade. So you're basically on the run. So things have gone sideways, you're on the run. Uh, ultimately, what happened with this patrol was three of the patrol members were killed, four of them were captured, and one managed to escape and E&E'd for eight days to the Syrian border. So there's been a few books written about this Bravo 2-0 situation. Um, the one about the guy that got away is called The One That Got Away. Uh, obviously, the book called Bravo 2-0, and there was another called, I think it was Soldier 5 or Soldier Number 5, but there's been a few. And there's been a few issues with, with the different accounts of what went on during this, this op and some of these issues were the same things that we see today come up where spec ops guys will write a book or give interviews. And then there's a lot of argument about, well, what actually happened or is somebody insulting somebody else or is this disparaging the image of a community or disparaging some guys who are dead or, you know, whatever. And, you know, this was, you know, early nineties. So, I mean, we still have these issues now, so you can just, you can imagine, you know, before the lessons that have been learned now, like back then, you can just imagine, you know, how it was magnified. But this entire incident was definitely complicated by the fact, you know, at the time of the op, definitely complicated by the fact that this was the West's first foray into this situation that we're neck deep in, in the Middle East right now. And in the spec ops community in particular, it was still at the time very much geared towards fighting a very different flavor of war that would be closer to, say, a Vietnam-type setting than what we're used to in the Middle East. So, I mean, even when I came in in the 90s, like, I came in in the 90s, and as I was getting trained up, I was ready to fight in the jungle a lot sooner than I was ever ready to, to get by in the desert, the way that we learned, like in Vietnam, like you could really almost just stay out there almost indefinitely and get by if you knew what you were doing, you knew what to avoid, but you you know where you can find water, you know where you can find something to eat. Uh, when I was at Team One, when I was a new guy, there was an old guy, like a Nam era guy, that tried to jump into a platoon, like, you know, kind of just wanted to get back in the mix. And who can blame him, right? Because busting up rental cars with your friends, there's there's just nothing better. But this guy tried to get back into a platoon and um, he'd go out for these training blocks and he'd have like one canteen and a knife and other dudes are looking at him, you know, and we had gotten to where we're, we're training like down near the Mexican border, you know, kind of gearing up for, for a desert type situation. And you learn real fast that like, you're not going to find water, man. You're going to have to bring everything you drink. So this dude didn't last, you know, and it was rough. Um, and maybe if we were going back to Vietnam or something, uh, he would have done just fine. Hey, maybe we can still go to Vietnam. You never know. Fingers crossed, right? But uh, the thing is, though, I mean, going to the desert, you just can't carry enough to survive when you're that old. Because, you know, in the desert, the minute you step off the insert platform, whether that's a helo or a gun truck or whatever, the clock is ticking. 
because the food and the water is hard to come by. Um, and, and comms, like you've got to have comms. You've got to have radio communications. You've got to have a ride out lined up. And compared to like a Vietnam type situation, this whole E&E thing, escape and evade, it becomes very, very complex. Uh, I mean, it's hard enough to get into a place unnoticed out there, which makes it so much harder to get out when people are actively looking for you. But with this Bravo 2-0 situation, um, so these guys, you know, now that I've digressed a million miles, these guys, uh, Bravo 2-0, they get compromised, they go on E&E, and their E&E plan was basically, if we get shot at and things go sideways, we're just going to walk to Syria, which being eight days away is arguably worse than having no plan at all. Like steal a camel and ride it back to base, uh, get a disguise at the bazaar and you know, any, anything is better than we'll just walk for eight days, you know, and get water where, I don't know. We're just going to walk. But so with this patrol, they, uh, they get compromised. They get in a firefight. Guys get separated again, major no, no, Guys are on the run, and, and I mean, I don't want to knock these guys so much because there's such a huge difference between, you know, what we learn to fight in a, in a jungle or even an urban environment and what you've got to deal with out in the open desert. You know, I mean, you're, you're fighting on a billiard table, like literally, it's, it's not the deal. And the reason that we know so much now about what works well is because guys like this who went before us and learned the hard way in terms of what doesn't work. But I mean, again, there were things that happened that should never have happened that ended up causing guys to get rolled up. So not having any kind of lay of the land in terms of where to head to besides just go towards Syria, going out there without enough food, going out there without enough water. One of the guys in, in one of the books, one of the guys that ended up dying, uh, killed in action, the guy described him as, uh, the guy that wrote the book described him as having running shorts on under his op gear. So that if it all went pear-shaped, he could just strip off his cami pants and he could just run to Syria. I'm like, come on, man. Um, engaging with the locals, you know, when you don't absolutely have to because you don't know who these people are. You don't know who they're going to call, who they're going to send a runner to to the next town. Moving around during the daytime. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we learned the hard way was, you know, you, can, you move around during the daytime in the jungle, uh, but at night... You know, you got to move around in the daytime just about because it's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Uh, but in in the uh, in the desert, it's almost the polar opposite. You move during the day, people are going to see you. They're going to see you a lot because there's nothing else to see. So you wait and you move at night. And all these things contributed to guys getting rolled up, rolled up hard. But if we take a look at the one guy, the one guy that got away, this guy, Chris Ryan, he was the new guy in the in the patrol, evaded everybody for eight straight days. And while there's some discussion about, oh, his description of this was inaccurate or this part, I think he made that up. Bottom line, this guy didn't get caught. And he, even by his own description, the way this guy did it was always boxed around villages, even when it hurts. And box around in the middle of the desert means you're going to have to go way, way, way out there. Because you can see way, way, way out there. So if you don't want to get seen, there's going to be a lot of walking. When daytime comes, the guy lays up, finds a place to hide. And that may not seem like such a big deal. You know, in, in sunny San Diego, that's that's a fine time. You know, I'll lay up during the day, just lay under a tree, take it easy. But in the desert, with that hammer coming out of the sky, that heat, dude, it stings. 
it's no good. But again, that's that's the discipline. That's the integrity. Doing what you want to do even when it hurts. And then obviously avoiding the locals because that was one of the things that got those other guys rolled up and allowed this guy to get away. But this speaks to not just knowing what to do, but actually doing it and doing it again when you really, really don't want to. So if we think of this in a much broader sense that applies to all of us, well, for the physicists in the room, we can look at this from the, from the perspective of the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that the entropy of any isolated system will always increase and will only ever evolve towards equilibrium. So to break that down, in normal people words, this means that a system will degrade. Things that are built will collapse. Things put in motion will slow down. What goes up must come down. So basically, if you go to the beach, you build a sandcastle, it's never going to become a bigger, better sandcastle. It's only going to become like the rest of the beach unless you maintain it. And that speaks to the effort that we all have to put in. Order does not arise from disorder. Even if you just want a system to hold steady, it can only happen when someone or something is there to hold it steady. A system can only ever improve when people like you are there to improve it. And I'm saying you because for a lot of people, the stress in the situation we're dealing with right now, the stress is up. All right? The tension is up. And when tension is up, your ability to focus long-term goes down. People's ability to think long-term, think of other people, think of anything outside of arm's reach goes down. They're thinking about right now, they're thinking about getting theirs because they're only worried about surviving for the next 10 minutes. But if you're listening to this, I'm assuming that you're here because you in some small way want to make the world around you, the world beyond arm's reach, a better place for you and the people you interact with. Your job then is to help those people understand that the way to improve their situation, the way to improve all of our situation, is not to turn inward and start just getting theirs while the getting is good. You know, I've heard people say that, you know, what feels like societal collapse right now, that is the time to start looting, right? We're in the looting phase of the falling empire. Well, it it's becomes a chicken or egg situation. Is it falling because everyone is looting or is everyone looting because it was already falling? Again, like I've said before, if the ship's going to sink, you make sure you're the guy contributing so that it goes down with a fresh coat of paint, right? So instead of allowing these people to just look out for themselves and, and, and get theirs and think so short term, what we can do is convey to our people that even if only by example, that whether their role in this circus is as a decision maker or just a guy collecting shopping carts, this whole ship isn't going to just magically ride itself. It's going to take everyone from Mr. Big to Joe Lunchbox doing the right thing, even when they'd rather not. So that's all we got for this week. If you've got questions, thoughts, comments, or concerns, or you've got something you'd like to hear our thoughts on, you can send us an email at info at apg.team. You can also take a look at our website at www.apg.team, see what we have going on. And you can also sign up there for our Tuesday tip of the week, which comes out every, yes, Tuesday. And as always, feel free to like, subscribe, or share the ideas you've heard here, because as we all know, the world needs hitters. So... As the sun sets slowly in the east, I'll leave you with a quote that has stuck with me since I heard it about 17 years ago and have since not been able to find a source for, so do feel free to contact us if you know who said it. But the quote goes like this, The world is home to but two men, and not a one between. In this world there are those who lift, and there are those who lead.
am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not.